0: Before the break, I um, uh, missed out a verse that I wanted to end with, but you'll see it at the bottom of the sheets. I don't know whether you're one of those people, uh, I've got to be careful what I say here, but one of those people who like having books of the promises of Jesus. Yeah, sometimes they're very helpful, you know, keep in your loo, read a promise and feel better about life. Well, here's a promise. It's not one of the more conventional ones. In fact, I suspect this probably doesn't appear in any of those little books of promises. John 16, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Here's the promise. In this world, you will have trouble. Yeah, that's what Jesus says. It's a promise of Jesus, all right? So if you have one of those little books of Jesus' promises, a sort of anthology of nice promises, can you just write this one in? Because I pretty guarantee, pretty much guarantee it won't be there. In this world, you will have trouble. But look what Jesus says. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, the book of Revelation is designed to help us to hold both realities intent, uh, together. Yes, there is trouble, but yes, he has overcome the world. The question is, what does that mean in practice? Well, this is where we come to chapters 2 and 3. Now, what I want to do in the next fifty minutes or so is to try and cover all seven letters. All right? Because I think uh, very often... Um, and the, you know, one approach is a, is a perfectly valid approach and a helpful approach is to take each one and analyze each letter and, and glean some of the important truths and, and uh, uh, lessons to learn about being Christ's church here on earth. But actually, we sometimes, if we do that, fail to see the big picture. And so what I want to do in the next 15 minutes or so is to try and grasp the big picture. And I think it'll mainly be done just sort of getting into groups around the room and working on it together, and then we'll feed back. But you see, I've hinted at the number seven being significant. Why is it that there are seven? Well, it's because it's the number of completion. You see, the interesting thing is, in Turkey, or Asia Minor as it then was, there were more churches than the seven here. We know that. But some of them get missed out, not because they're in significant places or churches, but because there's a theological point being made. There are seven churches... Uh, written to symbolically here to give us an overall picture of what it means to be part of God's church, God's people in the world. And so we should try and put all the different pieces of the jigsaw together and aim for the good things and reject the bad things that we see in our own community life. So in a sense, the next 50 minutes or 45 minutes as it now is, will be a reality check. And yes, there's an irony in the title of this section. I called it Living with the Worldly Church. Yes, the church lives in the world in contrast to the church in heaven, which we're going to look at next week. But it's also the case that the earthly church is far from heavenly in its behavior and life. In fact, sometimes, perhaps even often, The church is very worldly indeed. So as we think about this, and and perhaps there are some here from other churches, and that's great. You're very welcome to be here. We all need to think about our own churches. Don't point fingers elsewhere. But for those of us who have all souls as our church family home, then I want you to remember that the Son of Man is walking through the lampstands, and I want you to imagine what he sees as he walks down Riding House Street Onto Langham Place and through the doors of All Souls. And I mean that metaphorically because, of course, All Souls is not just what happens in the building. All Souls is what we are and what we do and who we are, wherever we are. We can't hide from Him. And the question at the end of this is how do we fare? Well, you'll see on uh, your booklets and um, on the screen you'll see this chart. Basically, I've taken the seven letters. For instance, you see Colossae is not there. Colossae was an important church in this area. And there's a letter to the Colossians. But for the purposes of Revelation at this stage, it doesn't matter. The point is, here we have seven churches picked uh, by God through John, to make some very important points. So what I would love you to do in the next, side do know, 15, 20 minutes, you won't be able to finish it all, but you'll may be able to make a start and maybe take this away and uh, work on on your own afterwards. But just get into groups of three or four and try and establish the sort of commonalities, the common patterns. And, uh, and there are a lot of sort of parallels between these seven churches. And try and fill in the gaps, okay? I've tried to ha- give you a bit of a head start by blocking out one or two of the bits where I don't think there is a... A section in that letter to coincide, correspond to those areas, uh, but uh, you may decide otherwise. But basically there are five features to look for. There's a description of Jesus. There's what he says about their lifestyle and their deeds. I say he, most of the time he says, I know your deeds. So what does he know about them? Then he says, I have this against you. Not always, but sometimes. And then he calls on them to repent or to hold to some teaching And the consequences either of accepting or rejecting that teaching are explained. So those five sections, can you manage that? Is everyone happy? Everyone understand? Okay. Those are bits that I think that you will not find in those letters. But if you think I've got it wrong, you can write over them. Okay. Okay, groups of threes, fours, twos, fives, I don't know. Anyone finish the whole lot? That uh, is the one I prepared earlier, obviously. What I might try and do is get copies of that and bring them next week if you like. If you're nice to me. But I wonder if um, anything struck you by taking this sort of approach, trying to get a sort of bird's eye view of the, these two chapters. Was it Anything strike you um, that you hadn't seen before? I guess these are the most familiar parts of the book perhaps excluding maybe 21 and 22 chapters 21 and 22 but these are the bits that people seem to sort of get drawn to was but approaching it like this was there anything that struck you for the first time or became um particularly strongly yeah okay sorry the the gold bit what was that bit Mm -hmm. okay so so there's sort of uh, pretty interesting language and imagery going on, yep, um, and where that's drawn from raises sort of questions, definitely. Yep. Anything else? Okay, fine. Yep. Okay, so this pattern seems to work out in most of them, except for the ones I blocked out in blue. In case you didn't have, hear that, uh, basically, there is a sort of sequence and a pattern. Yep. Jennifer? Okay, so, so by taking this approach, you do see a bit of a sort of roadmap for each one. Um, so there's something in that. Yeah, Derek? Most of them. Yep. Right. So, so there are a number of things that actually it, it takes someone with the eyes of the Son of Man in chapter one to be able to perceive some of the things. So, you know, you have the reputation of life, but I can actually see what's going on under the surface. Is that the sort of thing you were? Yep. Good. Anything else just from taking this sort of bird's eye view? Okay. I think that is true. When we start looking at them like this, you think, yeah, there is a great deal of similarity, but then what we need to do then to begin to work out what the distinct things that each church is adding to our overall picture of what it means to be in Christ's body. So once we see the pattern established, what then we need to do is to try and work out, well, what is the unique thing? What is the distinctive characteristic of each of these seven churches that helps us gain a bigger picture of what's going on? And I sort of tried to sum it up like this, uh, which you can't really see, but you will see on the sheet next week when I give it to you. By the way, John Stott has, of course, written a commentary on chapters 1 to 3 called What Christ Thinks of the Church, and he takes this approach, trying to distinguish uh, between each church in terms of a sort of core characteristic of what should be there, uh, present in um, an individual congregation or or community. But uh, the, the sort of seven virtues, if you like, is what I've tried to sort of outline it as from each one. So Ephesus um, it's love for Jesus that should be at the core, at the heart, and that's something that obviously h- had gone wrong there. Smyrna, well, enduring persecution. That fits with what we've heard about John already in chapter 1. Pergamum it's teaching sound teaching. Sound literally means healthy. So what is for health in the church? Thyatira, there needs to be an intolerance of evil. Sardis. Well, there needs to be spiritual reality and vibrancy and fervor. Philadelphia, patient waiting, and Laodicea, humble dependence. Um, it's just the way I've summed it up, but in a sense, you can have your own go and try and work it out yourselves. I didn't put that on the sheets. You can take that away and work it out for yourself, um, how you would try and sum up. But you see, that the, the main aim, it seems to me, is that we draw together the different threads from these seven that... They're not picked out at random, but they are sort of picked out as a group as opposed to a whole load of other churches that were in the area that he could have talked about. And so what was it about these seven that when you put them all together, you find um, helps to understand what church should be? Well, if you turn over the page in your booklets, you'll see some of the things that I've sort of taken these elements and tried to sort of pick out. Some things to observe. What did you notice as we think about the assessor, in other words, the one who is walking around these churches, Jesus? Now, incidentally, someone asked me the question: What what do we make of him writing to the angel of the churches? Well, angel literally means angelos in Greek, means a messenger, Um, and it can mean a heavenly messenger or a human messenger. It doesn't really. Uh, You know, it just depends on context or whatever. And actually it's unclear whether it's a spiritual heavenly being messenger here or it's just the pastor of the church. Either way, what is happening here is that Jesus is speaking through these people and angels, unless they're one and the same thing, in order to communicate. But what do you notice about the way the assessor, the way Jesus is described in each of these seven letters? What do we learn about the Assessor, who is, of course, Jesus? Did you spot any links or any sort of common themes going on here? He's alive, has authority. Do you notice the, the descriptions? Go on. Right, that's pretty cool. But where's it from? Right. Do you see most of them take specific details from the vision of chapter 1 and apply them to the individual churches, do you see? It's all in Revelation 1 terms. He sees, he speaks, he's sovereign, he is king. And this is the Jesus to whom we've already been introduced, do you see? So this is just yet another example of the point I'm trying to make over and over again, and that is that we've got to understand the Bible from the Bible, we've got to understand the book of Revelation from the Bible, and we've got to understand the book of Revelation from itself. These are not random. These are not obscure. These are things drawn from chapter 1, which itself is drawn from places like Daniel 7, Ezekiel, and so on. All right? You don't need to look elsewhere to find out what's going on. And so basically, there's a coherence here, because what's happening is the, the one who walks amongst the lampstands has particular features and characteristics that seem to be relevant to specific churches in this group of seven. Do you see the point? And I think the more you sort of look for that, the more you begin to see it. Not because you're imposing on the text, but because it leaps out at you from the text. It's all there. Okay, and I'm sure John, as he writes, expects us to do that. Okay, well, let's think about some of the appraisals. What are the sorts of things that he approves of? Good works? Yep. Perseverance? Perseverance? Perseverance in what particular context? I mean, we've talked about it, but let's just nail it. True to his name, in the midst of persecution. All right, Facing acute hardship, one or two of these churches really are getting it in the neck. And you get sort of extraordinary language, don't you, of sort of synagogues of Satan and all this sort of stuff. But I guess those from those particular cities would have known exactly what was going on. And they would have been able to put faces to uh, and, and, you know, specific memories to the things that get sent in this letter to them. Anything else? False teaching. Very crucial issue. It's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, I think it's true to say that every single letter in the New Testament pretty much is written as the result or to respond to some kind of false teaching or um, dodgy activity. In a funny sort of way, that should be quite encouraging. I know that 's rather a perverse way of looking at it, but but the point is that false teaching is a reality, and has been ever shall be ever since the beginning. we shouldn 't be surprised by it; we should be alert to it. The problem is though, as soon as you start talking like that, then you can encourage what I call heresy hunters who are just out to find the latest and smallest and tightest heresy they can pick on and jump up and down on. Our attitude should not be just to be sniffing out heresy wherever we can find it, but we should be clear about what is sound teaching, healthy teaching, what is teaching that builds up the church, and sometimes that will mean having to refute error, however uncomfortable or difficult that might be. Okay, so there there are a number of the things. Sound teaching, perseverance and progress, good deeds. Okay, what about some of the things that get rebuked? Forsaking first love. Now, whatever that is, that's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? So, in other words, these people seem to be going really well at the beginning, but something's gone chronically and terribly wrong. Yep. Tolerate false teaching. The Nicolaitans, yes, these are friends who no one really knows who they were. And in a sense, I think in the providence of God, that's just as well. (laughs) Because I think it's alerting us to the reality of false teaching and groupings and sects and people that come along and, and... rather than, and just seeing that as a matter of principle and sort of generality, rather than saying, oh, well, we don't have people like them in our church because they've been identified so acutely as a specific thing. So we know that it leads to some sort of immorality and so on, as in fact false teaching always does, by the way. False teaching always leads to immorality in some shape or form. Anything else? Wicked deeds, yep, so turn it on its head, yep apathy, prideful idolatry even, and a lack of spiritual fervor. Now, we've got to be quite careful, I think, with some of this imagery, particularly things like, you know, neither hot nor cold and lukewarm and all this sort of stuff. We've got to be careful not to push the imagery too far. And uh, I've heard people talking about how, you know, God would prefer you to be completely far away and cold to the gospel than just lukewarm. You heard people interpret those verses like that? You know, you're you're neither one thing nor the other, and God says, no, I want you to be either fully in or fully out. Don't be this lukewarm, sort of -of middle-of-the-road, fence-sitting nonsense. Well, I can tell you that's nonsense. Since when did God want anybody to be living a life of rebellion? It can't be right, can it? Uh, Basically, the principle probably is usefulness you know hot water is useful cold water is useful lukewarm is disgusting and doesn't serve any purpose i think that's the point we just got to be careful here not to sort of push things too far but i think you know there are a number of things that basically are rebuked and rightly so false teaching which often leads to immorality and what i call the prideful idolatry and lack of spiritual vitality reality it's just all facade and image any comments questions so far is basically yeah. Everyone thinks what a great church. And it's um, it's not different in a way from you know Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? At the end of that, and he says, you know, some will at the end will say, you know, Lord, Lord, uh, we've cast out demons in your names, and we've done all kinds of amazing things for you. And Jesus turns around to them and say, I'm sorry, I don't think we've met. So yeah, it is a it is a biblical reality. And I think it's something to be wary of. I get really fed up with people talking about the All Souls reputation. I couldn't care less about the All Souls reputation. I couldn't care less whether some people think we're a flagship church or we're just a minor Anglican blip on a big map that's becoming all kinds of other things. I'm not interested in that. Who cares? Our reputation is neither here nor there. What matters is our spiritual dependency on God and our vitality. Otherwise, we just become sadists. I can see that happening to All Souls, can't you? We've got money, we've got buildings, we've got resources, we've got people. We can just chug along, we can just have our programs, we can put on Revelation Unwrapped courses. It can all go happily along. But the proof of the pudding will be coming when there's persecution, won't it? And we'll see how many people hang in there. Um, Well, I think, yeah, we want to avoid scandal. Uh, We want to be, we want to um, fulfill our mission purpose. You're absolutely right. But if um, I'm not interested in people who think, hey, wow, all souls, I I think that's irrelevant and profoundly unhelpful because we're all proud and we all rather like it. Hey, I go to all souls. Repent. (laughs) The future. What's going to happen in the future? Well, there are challenges. So uh, here are a number. If you're backsliding, Jesus says, do what you did at first. Do what you did at first. If you're suffering, what do you think he says to those who are suffering? Endure, rejoice, don't be afraid. What about those who are living immoral lives? Quit, repent, hold on to the gospel and not Jezebel. We've all got to do that, haven't we? Because we live in the West End or come to church in the West End, we are surrounded by a materialist paradise. I live just upstairs. We live in Marylebone Village. We go shopping every day to Tesco Express on the high street. We're surrounded by the most extraordinary vehicles and people living the most extraordinary lifestyles. You know, we've got in our family, we've got a little sort of mental celebrity checklist of people we see and bump into. They're coming to visit us, obviously, but... um, uh, it's quite funny, actually. There was someone, um, y- you know, um, you've seen Spooks and Ros Myers, the, the, the woman who's in the latest series of Spooks. Well, uh, she was sitting in a coffee shop the other day, and I nearly went up to her thinking she was a member of All Souls. <laughs> said, oh, hi, and then I just suddenly remembered who she was. Uh, <laughs> she said, oh, who's this weirdo? Anyway, it's very easy to have your head turned by it. We battle with that. i got to repent of my greed and materialism. Because greed, as the New Testament says, is idolatry. And idolatry is saying, I don't trust God to provide. I'm going to look somewhere else. In my case, the Royal Bank of Scotland. I'm only half joking. To those who are asleep, he says, wake up. Or else, the threats or hopes. One church gets judged and the lampstand is removed. I've often heard it said that, you know, you go to modern Turkey. I've never been. um, I'm actually going to do a mission trip to Istanbul uh, in 2 months' time with Langham, just just for three days to try and set up a Langham preaching conference in Turkey, which is absolutely fascinating and exciting, that there will be preaching conferences, teaching people how to teach the Bible in Turkey. There are only 3,000 evangelical Christians in the whole country. And you just sort of wonder... You go to places like Ephesus, and they're just ruins. But of course, enemies will be judged as well. And this is the grounds of some hope, isn't it? That actually the persecutor will end up having to give account. Jezebel will be cast down. And the greatest hope of all, which is double-edged, isn't it? I'm coming soon, he says. Now, are you looking forward to that, or are you rather nervous of that? Great, so am I. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But in the meantime, hang in there. And the rewards? Here are just a few. Eternal life, passing through the second death to the tree of life. Tree of life. Does that ring any bells? Where from? Genesis. We had been barred from the tree of life because of sin. Genesis 3. The flashing sword prevented anyone getting near because it's not right or appropriate or just for rebels against God, to live for eternity. But because of Jesus' victory, because the Lamb has won, we know where we're going, and we know what fruit we'll be eating forever. There is security, names written in the book of life, indelible. You know, you can go to Ryman's and buy one of those sort of indelible marker pens, but even after a while you can scratch it off and it comes off, doesn't it? You can carve stone, and it might last a thousand years. In fact, if you go to, Rome, go to Rome and go to the Forum, which I have done, and you can wander around the ancient Roman Forum, 2,000 years old, you can still read inscriptions, some just. But even those are fading as the stone crumbles. But this is written in the Book of Life, that to steal some words from somewhere else does not perish, spoil, or fade. Or will be pillars in the temple, God's church, God's people. Absolute security, which is grounds for hanging in there. And then this business of wearing white which is rather odd. It's not that, you know, suddenly you get the sort of personal automatic out and give your clothes a wash. This is just, you know, you get your clothes bright than the white. You know, Dad's automatic has a nothing on this. This is absolute, spotless, impeccable, beautiful holiness. We've lost, I think, a sense of the beauty of holiness, haven't we? We think of holiness as something sort of restrictive or somehow crushing or depersonalizing, whereas it couldn't be further from that if it tried. It's about becoming who we really are, who God made us to be, becoming truly beautiful, I mean, you're all lovely, but you're not as beautiful as God means you to be. And then authority. This is the bizarrest thing of all. He gives authority to sit with Christ on his throne and have authority over the nations. It's not unique. That comes at various other places in the New Testament. But we will be joined with him and share with him in what he has. Incredible things. It's enough to spur you on, isn't it? So all in all, we have a picture of the, work, the perfect church in God's world. Boy, wouldn't you like to be part of a church like that? Well, my friends, my brothers and sisters, you already are. If you're in Christ. That's you, that is. Love for Jesus, sound teaching, waiting patiently, humbly dependent, holy, enduring, alive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you as our King and Lord, our Judge, our Rescuer. We praise you for your amazing command not to be scared. We praise you that you have the keys to death and Hades, that you've opened the door, that you were dead, but now you are alive now and forevermore we pray lord jesus that you would help us to be the people who overcome who hold on to what is good and true who turn back from what is wrong who wake up when we feel sleepy people who stick with you for your glory's sake amen